Hi, this is Ryan, Noah, Hi, y'all. and Lou. Hey, guys. From Punching Out. We've been airing on Wayo for four years now and want you to know that everything the station does is only possible through a lot of volunteer labor and the support of listeners like you. So from now until November 12th, you can go to donate.wayofm, that's W-A-Y-O-F-M.org, and help keep us and the 80 other shows that air on Wayo each week going for years to come. Donors and Wayo members get cool perks like t-shirts, discounts at local businesses, and more. So go to donate.wayofm.org to support your favorite community radio station. Thanks. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. Every week we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work. Whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between, we want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Zoe. Hey, everyone. Before we get into today's subject, I should note that we're going to be talking about issues of sexual assault, sexual coercion on today's show. And you may want to um, tune this episode out if those are things that you are sensitive to. We totally understand. The reason we're talking about this is there was a recent story that came out in The Athletic about a coach in the National Women's Soccer League by the name of Paul Riley, detailing that he had a fairly long history of being abusive towards players in ways both verbal and physical, coercing players into sexual relationships, sending unsolicited nude photos, just real nasty stuff. Rochester listeners might note that uh, Paul Riley was for a year the manager of the Western New York Flash here in Rochester. Um, before they moved to North Carolina, where he remained the manager of the team. He joined the Flash after being fired by the Portland Thorns in 2015 for reasons that at the time were not made public, but which, due to this uh, story in The Athletic, people now know was because it was found that he had violated uh, team policy, which in turn is code for all of this abusive stuff. There's a lot here. It's hard to know where to start with this discussion. I think that it would be beneficial to maybe talk first about how this kind of was allowed to slide under the radar in the NWSL. And in this case, as in many cases, it was because it was reported to certain people, but it wasn't escalated up the chain. And Evidently, Paul Riley was able to get jobs elsewhere after this, Mm -hmm. which means that these stories were either not passed on or were not considered credible or important enough to deny him a job. We'll see this pattern uh, in many other places, not just in sports, but throughout like any abuse of power or sexual coercion case in the workplace. It's a pretty common story, and we've heard it time and time again. Many players, of course, were aware of it and kind of had back-channeled each other about it, but it never was really escalated to the point where 
people were publicly saying anything about it until Meg Linehan's article came out, I believe, on September 30th of this year. Right. And this um, when when you talk about players like knowing that this was a thing that, you know, this was a coach, a very successful coach in the league, you know, somebody who had won championships was, you know, also somebody who was abusing players in this way. The fact that it was an open secret is sort of shocking for, for many people. The first reaction is, how was this this common knowledge and yet nobody was doing anything about it? And yet this is a pattern that you see in all sorts of stories along these lines. I think that it also has to do a bit with the fact that this is a women's sports league and oftentimes players don't necessarily feel as empowered to speak up about this sort of thing because their situation financially or in terms of the viability of their sport in a professional setting is a lot more precarious um, than it might be in a men's league. And I think that that means that a lot of people who were affected by this were just afraid. Like, if I come out about this, like, is it going to end the National Women's Soccer League? Is it going to end this team? Is it going to prevent, you know, other young people coming up in this sport from having the same opportunities that I've had. Um, Something that you hear a lot from women's athletes is that they want to leave the sport better than they found it, which has a very profound impact considering like the relatively short history of women's sports compared to professional men's sports in public settings. So I think that it, it really creates like an ideal environment for an abuser to flourish when you have so many people who are afraid and are not just thinking about their own futures, but about the futures of something much bigger. We've talked in the past in the show when we talk about women's sports about this sort of sense that a lot of athletes have that they need to sort of carry the banner for the league or, you know, just the cause of their sport in the public eye that they maybe let things slide that they shouldn't, that they wish they didn't have to or didn't feel like they have to in order to grow the game or, you know, whatever metaphor you want to use for the idea of helping leave things in a better place for the next generation, like you put it. So it's it's sort of a common thread. And unfortunately, that enables people to take advantage of those vulnerabilities. I wanted to sort of uh, hit a little bit harder the fact that this is something that you see Basically, we know that sexual abuse and coercion and abuse of power, we know that precarity and that need of people to uh, sort of the passion for the work, right? The idea of caring about it beyond just the paycheck, beyond getting to do something in your field, but the idea that you want to make your workplace better than it was. We know that this applies to every other every other story about this. We know that in the other environments that are rife with sexual abuse and coercion, there's a lot of this stuff going on and that the silencing factors are almost always the fact that the people who, the victims of it can't speak out out of fear. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because on every Strike Zone episode, we have a constitutionally mandated disclaimer that, you know, oftentimes we are talking about uh, I mean, we're we're always talking about public figures, and oftentimes we are talking about highly paid public figures, but in many, many ways, they remain not all that different in terms of what their labor relations are from you and me, 
And here's one particularly horrible way in which they're not all that different. Yeah, like the NWSL players are making, you know, on average, I think about $30,000 a year. Um, Someone said in an article that came out this summer that the high end of the salary, um, along with bonuses and such that they might make, is about $52,000 a year. Um, And that's something that has actually been part of um, the the NWSL Players Association's campaign this summer. Um, They started a, a hashtag no more side hustles um, to talk about their fight for better pay in the league since while they are making what would be considered like in some cases a a living middle-class wage for like a single person that's obviously not enough for folks who might have a family um, who might have other expenses and they are not being paid anywhere near the same as their male counterparts in professional soccer Um, especially when you consider that soccer is such a global game that you know, the the players in Europe are like royalty with the amount of money that they make. So they're, they're definitely on a different level. So you mentioned how the union has been talking about um, the average pay in the league and the need for that to improve. But um, I, I think we should talk a bit about how the union responded to, you know, this story coming out and these allegations of abuse, because the union has been very forceful in its response to all of this. It, it, it has not stayed on the sidelines and stayed out of it the way that sometimes we see entities do when there are, you know, controversial issues, to put it mildly. Yeah, uh, the Players Union came out with a, a list of demands pretty much immediately um, after Meg Linehan's article broke. There had also been an earlier story that had come out, I think, about a month and a half prior, where a coach who was with a different team than Paul Riley. He was a, a different coach, a different situation, but he had been verbally abusing players for years. And that was another story that had come out that they were reacting to. But in in light of the comprehensive investigation that was published about Paul Riley, they came out with a list of demands regarding what they wanted the league leadership to do pretty much immediately. And all of these have to do with like accountability structures for how allegations of abuse are going to be handled in the future and just like further transparency from the league about things like this and, you know, there being a formal process in the future um, for investigating things like this. And that was just, it was immediate. It was unified. There were scheduled NWSL games um, in the days that followed where players stopped playing on the field in the middle of the game and just kind of all came together in in the middle of the uh, soccer pitch. And it's just an incredible unifying uh, show of support for the people who had suffered this type of abuse from their coaches. And it was just awe-inspiring, especially for me as someone who comes from hockey space to see like the unified messaging, the unequivocal, like full-throated support that they had for the victims. There was no no doubt of their stories, no one saying anything horrible about them. No one was in the media defending Paul Riley or Coach Ritchie of the Washington Spirit. Like no one was doubting that this had happened and no one was doubting that there was a problem. And a lot of that definitely came from the NWSLPA just immediately coming out and showing their support for the people who had been victimized and having this coherent list of demands to present to the league leadership. 
it was just, it was something that I've never seen before from a sports union. Not that I'm like a hundred percent an expert on all sports unions throughout history, but it was truly incredible to watch. Not, not that I'm an expert either, but I do have to say with my limited knowledge of sports unions over the last 60 years, which is basically how long they've existed. It was sensational. I mean, getting on the horse within, what was it, like hours, right? Before they released that statement, because they they referenced the report coming out that same morning and saying, we're, we're going to demand not only an investigation, which at this point, you know, is bog standard, but then to tack on, we're going to ask that anybody who is remotely connected to this be immediately suspended until the investigation is over. And then we want to know how Riley was able to get hired somewhere else when these allegations should have been known to league leadership. Like those are, I mean, it's exactly what we want from labor unions. It's specific demands uttered in, in complete force, right? There's no attempt to allow management any weasel room here. It's, this is exactly what we want. We want this to happen now. And we, and here's why we need it. And then the players were able to sort of add the rhetorical side of that. Uh, on top of those demands and create sort of the, I guess, I mean, it is, it, it's sort of the emotional, uh, the effective side of things by saying, here's why we're demanding this. It, we're, we're asking this because of, as you said, Zoe, we want to see uh, girls want to become NWSL players in the future. We want to ensure that there is a next generation to the sport. And having that two pronged attack, I think really left the league leadership in well, rightly, an untenable position. They they had to actually say and do things. Mm-hmm. And to the point of doing things, uh, League Commissioner Lisa Baird resigned basically immediately the day of the story after it became known that the league knew about Riley's abuses and nevertheless allowed him to be hired elsewhere. Right away, that's a victory for the players to because there are a lot of commissioners in some leagues who might have skated past an issue like this. We have seen in the past where ownership and, um, you know, the people running companies are able to skirt responsibility for the problems they cause and the problems that, you know, they have any sort of plausible deniability for. But here, Baird was immediately called to step down and did. Yeah, I think it really illustrates like how you absolutely need like every or at least like a vast majority of players kind of like on the same page about some very basic principles of ethics regarding, you know, not just your league's culture, but your sports culture in general, like that unified message. It's like, I've never seen anything like it in hockey with the possible exception of, I believe it was the uh, 2017 IHF Women's World Championship. Twenty, I, I will double check that, but I think it was in 2017 when all of the uh, women's hockey players basically said they wouldn't play in this international tournament um, for Team USA until USA Hockey um, created more like equitable distribution of resources between the men's and women's programs. And it's just like when you you have to get everyone together to say the thing, otherwise it's not going to happen. Otherwise, there's going to be someone providing cover for it. And in this particular case, the NWSL PA and all of the players made certain that there wouldn't be anyone left to cover for this horrific abuse that had taken place. 
Um, and I think that shows just the strength of the soccer culture among these players. Um, and just like the fact that they're able to, to listen to each other and believe each other. And there's like clearly a culture of trust among them um, that is really just incredible. Like you never, you don't see anything like that anywhere in sports, in my opinion. I think there's something to the fact that it is a relatively new league that does that. One of the things that we're going to see, and we are going to see it in the very next segment, is the fact that most sports leagues and their unions really are kind of driven by inertia in a lot of ways. I mean, almost everything is right now, uh, which is weird given what we went over, went through, pardon me, the last two years. But almost everything is kind of driven by the desire to keep doing the same thing that we've been doing for decades. And I do think that the relative newness of the NWSLPA had to practice that before we got on air. I think helped in that way, because if you've been part, if you're part of the players that created this union and that are seeing it through these first campaigns, you are personally invested in these fights in a way that future generations hopefully will be as well. But we kind of know that doesn't tend to happen. So the fact that they are coming out swinging this quickly and this fully this early in the process is a great sign. I mean, I, I hope that it would become an example for um, not just for future soccer players, but for athletes in general, that you can do this kind of advocacy work and that you can stand up to your commissioner and, and force them into this kind of position. But as you said, a lot of that is going to rely on the players trusting and listening to each other in a way that we really haven't seen in a lot of the other leagues. A couple of things that I feel like need to be mentioned in all this. Um, we, we've made note of, you know, the victims in the story. And this story likely doesn't exist without the efforts of Sinead Fairley and Mana Shim, two players who came forward in that athletic article to speak out against Riley publicly, to put their names to their stories about what had happened to them. Um, I think it was Fairley who describes having collapsed on field in a game after feeling just, you know, the psychological pressure that he had put her under. And so it's because of their courage and coming out that, you know, all of this happened, that Riley lost his job right away, that, you know, he's no longer in a position where he can do these. There's also something that's been unspoken in all this that, you know, women's sports, even women's sports are often a place where men are in charge of things, unfortunately. It, it mirrors much of the rest of society in that way. And it's, um, you know, something that is changing slowly but surely. There are more women in coaching positions and in executive positions in leagues like the NWSL, though that is not, um, in the case of Lisa Baird, obviously not sufficient. A lot had to go wrong and be wrong for this to happen and unfortunately that's what happened yeah even when um there are women in leadership positions in sports i often find that the main money people who are driving what's going on in a league are often men you can have women in every position but if your money is coming from like an investment group that's headed by men even if there aren't explicit like limits on you I think you will find that those leaders kind of like they they hold back a little bit because I think they they, we still have concerns about rocking the boat or you know making men uncomfortable even when 
we might be visibly in charge of something. Not to say that that's what happened in the NWSL, but I think that that's why there's often a culture of silence in these situations is because the money can be withdrawn at any second by by someone who they, they can make or break you. So I think that that goes a lot into how we we see these things. Um, and I do think that like the the cultural reckoning piece of the last few years with, you know, quote unquote, me too, and really just talking more about abuses of power by men in public places and the workplace, you know, that is kind of slowly changing how the money moves because people are realizing that like when you put money into this thing, that there is an actual cost and a liability. It's sad that it's kind of had to come to that though, that it couldn't be about like the human costs. It couldn't be about having empathy for people who have been harmed. Um, it had to, it ultimately has been more about um, whether there's going to be a financial consequence for investors. And now at least investors don't want to fund sexual abusers. So I guess that's a win for all of us. You know, and unfortunately it, there's often the case where the people with the money are people with, you know, abusive tendencies. There, it's noted in this NPR piece, which is mostly about um, Richie Burke, who had been the head coach of the Washington Spirit in the NWSL, had been fired for, you know, creating an abusive atmosphere there, not a sexually abusive one, but one in which he was berating players and um, using homophobic and racial slurs, I believe is alleged against him. It's noted that Unfortunately, the problems did not stop with the coach. It was also the team's owner and CEO, Steve Baldwin, who had, uh, quote, maintained a culture that left women feeling sidelined or demeaned. Current and former employees told reporters that the team felt like an old boys club and misogynistic. It always seems to start at the top when you when you start looking at things like this. It's like rarely is there like, you know, just one guy at the bottom of the of of the situation on on the last rung of the ladder who's doing something bad and then he gets caught and then it's all over um it's it's normally something that's been incubated cuz that's how people who have those abusive tendencies are able to insert themselves is where there are gaps or where there are kind of hesitancies to create like an open and inclusive and safe culture um, and unfortunately, you do often see that in newer sports leagues, or e- even as um, we're going to talk about soon, older sports leagues, like sports leagues are massive hulking machines of many moving pieces. And it's very difficult to uh, to examine every aspect of them without great intentionality. And that intentionality is something that I think culturally, we're really only just beginning to learn how to have um, on a large scale. That I think that right there is why it often feels when, so for example, we just had this past week, we had the Robert Sarver story, the owner of the Phoenix Suns and Phoenix Mercury, uh, who turned out to be, and I think he owns a Spanish soccer club in Mallorca, if I remember correctly, speaking of, we'll pretend that's the link, but He's accused of all of these things. I mean, uh, coming up with the weirdest justifications, the weirdest and most racist often justifications for his hiring decisions for years on end. And with older sports leagues, it often feels like the reason they're finally getting dinged for or, or that it's finally getting reported is that they lost somebody's protection 
that somebody finally said it's okay to go after this person or it's it's fine we're not gonna put the kibosh on this story and i do think that having i do think that one i mean i don't want to call it an advantage given what led up to it but it feels like again the relative youth of a league does allow for somebody like Meg Linehan to be able to report on this and force the league's hand in response because they're not going to have decades upon decades of personnel and yes men and, and whatnot to sort of bolster their case. And they haven't had decades of getting used to screaming fans defending them from anything they do. So that that I think is is a big um is is something that helps or rather is something that protects older leagues from this kind of backlash and it makes it makes the whole process feel a little bit more dishonest when stuff finally comes out. Yeah, I think that's a really really good point and I think that that also kind of offers um a po- a potential positive in this is that like oh we we're we've caught this and now we can really like start building something better from it um which in in older leagues may not necessarily even be possible without burning it all down and starting over because you've got these ingrained systems that have been incubated and kept for so long that people don't even know how to operate without them um whereas with a newer league you have like greater flexibility and mutability um like you can just change like i've seen le- leagues do this women's leagues in particular you can just like change the entire organization structure in like an off season and it's no big deal no one really even notices that it happened so no i want to come back to something you had said about um it feeling dishonest oh, in no. a way when things come out um it's just cuz that sort of dovetails with what we've seen i don't know if you followed how closely the uh, like John Gruden scandal in the NFL. Oh, um, very. Yes. Uh, John Gruden, for listeners who may not know, was the head coach of the Las Vegas Raiders, uh, was fired middle of the season due to um, it coming out that he had sent a litany of racist and homophobic comments and emails to um, Washington football team executive uh, Bruce Allen. And something that has been noted in the aftermath of this story is that despite these leaks of emails from a lawsuit against the team, there's no mention of team owner, Dan Snyder, the guy that the lawsuit is ostensibly about. He's weirdly excluded from the documents that happen to fall into the hands of reporters. It's so there's been a lot of uh, chin scratching about why that is. And, you know, Noah, you had made the point about, you know, possibly losing someone's protection as the reason why stories like this come out. And, you know, that has been theorized. Um, it's. You mean to tell me that Dan Snyder is an evil worm who does horrible things to people? You heard it here first. Punching out exclusive. Big if true. Yeah. See, I thought you were going to go a different way with that. I thought you were going to mention the the common assumption that the thing that actually got him fired in the end was that he used a homophobic slur to refer to NFL commissioner Roger Goodell and that the the NFL owners felt it was best if, after employing Roger for millions of dollars for years to take the ritualized abuse that they deserve, finally, they, they felt they could do one thing for Roger. 
they could do something nice for him. They, they've done millions and millions of nice things for him over the years. But um, yes, uh, I, I think we should take a break here. We'll come back and talk about how other leagues have handled similar scandals to the one in the NWSL and how other unions in particular have maybe not lived up to the high bar set by NWSL players in this last month. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still hi, y'all. And Zoe. Um, Still, hey, everybody. In our first segment, we discussed a recent story from the National Women's Soccer League about um, uh, abuse of power. Um, and for the second segment, unfortunately, we're going, we are going to stay on that theme. The content warnings we applied at the top of the show about sexual assault still very much apply to this segment um, as well. Um, unfortunately, um, there's a lot of this. Um, in... The case we're going to focus on in this segment now is um, in the National Hockey League. Um, it focuses on the Chicago Blackhawks. Um, it recently, a player, former first-round pick for the Blackhawks, Kyle Beach, came forward as the um, uh, accuser in a lawsuit alleging that a Blackhawks coach um, sexually assaulted him in 2011 as the team was making a run to the Stanley Cup finals. 2010, um, actually. My apologies, yes. Um, and Beach quickly, you know, told another coach about what had happened to him and nothing was done, unfortunately. Um, it's another case where people, you know, raised concerns about somebody in power and then that person was allowed to slink away to another job without nary a bad word being said about them in public, where at that next job, they then continued to abuse the power afforded to them. Yeah, uh, the perpetrator in this particular situation was a video coach for the Blackhawks named Brad Aldrich. Um, and Brad Aldrich went on to several other jobs, and it was... Um, at one of his jobs, I believe, at a high school where he was convicted and did serve some jail time for uh, sexually assaulting a minor. This happened years after the incident that Kyle Beach reported. And, of course, in that season, the Chicago Blackhawks went on to win the Stanley Cup for the first time in quite some time. And Brad Aldrich's name was engraved on the Stanley Cup. He was allowed to celebrate with the Stanley Cup. Um, and in the course of the Blackhawks denying that they provided him with a positive job reference, it's like, well, you did allow his name to be engraved on what is widely considered to be one of the greatest trophies in all of sports. So kind of, you don't really need to give him a job reference in that case. Like he's a Stanley cup champion, but yeah, it was, uh, it was a horrific thing to have allowed to happen. Uh, not just to Kyle Beach, but to and everyone that Brad Aldrich abused. What's interesting about this case compared to the NWSL case that we discussed in the last segment is that Brad Aldrich was a video coach 
and he was not particularly high on the totem pole. So it, the, the cover up in this case was really more to like avoid the bad publicity. It wasn't like there was like someone super high in power who was going to be affected by this. Like they could have fired him and been done with it, but they just basically just didn't want it to come out and they didn't want to talk about it because they were in the middle of this historic playoff run. So they just decided to not talk about it and pretend it didn't happen. And because that was the course of action they chose, this now has affected those in power. This now has resulted in people losing their jobs. Uh, Joel Quenville, who was who is now was now the coach of the Florida Panthers, got fired after you know. Uh, he was allowed to resign. I'd like to correct you on that matter. None of these people were fired. They were allowed to resign. Much like Aldridge himself, with severance, yeah. which is generally not a thing you collect if you resign a playoff bonus, and on top of the name being engraved on the cup, he gets a nice little championship ring. He can take wherever he wants. Yep, and show it off to people. Hmm. The the lawsuit really goes into detail about just how well known this incident was within the Blackhawks front office. It was not some secret. It was, again, one of these open secrets that everybody knew about, and nevertheless, nobody did anything about. Yeah, and we know more about it um, specifically because of an independent investigation by a law firm uh, called Jenner and Block, which was uh, hired to independently investigate the story. Um, And their, I think it's a 108-page report, came out last week. It feels like a lot longer since then, but I believe it came out last week. And it basically collects like all of the uh, testimony and recollections of everyone who was involved in the case. And after the report came out is when Kyle Beach publicly identified himself um, in an interview with TSN's Rick Westhead. He was speaking via video conference and he identified himself publicly for the first time. And that happened last week. And it was a very um, emotional and difficult interview that I think went on for about 20 minutes. And I would highly recommend that if you feel that you're able to deal with the subject matter, that you give it a watch because. He's very, very forthcoming and very clear about how this has affected him. And I think that um, it's a very important thing to look at, especially for people who might be still, you know, dealing with the stigma of perhaps being a survivor of sexual abuse. It's just he it, I just want to say how uh, how much that it affected me and how much I think that other people will benefit from hearing his story, even though I know that it was incredibly hard for him to come forward and it's been a years long process for him. There's a quote in this CBS sports article, which sort of provides a timeline of events and all of this um, from beach uh, says that the black Hawks in action after discovering the allegations made beach quote, feel like I didn't exist. And that's just crushing to hear. You know, any victim say that, you know, they felt like they didn't exist, that just like there was nothing that anybody was willing to do for them. It's um, and, you know, we're talking about this in juxtaposition with the NWSL case, because this is a case where even the players union of the NHL right now is sort of hands off with this story. They're not talking about this to the extent that. The NWSL went, you know, head on with league owner, 
ship and league officials over the abuse that happened in their league. Here we're seeing a much more muted reaction. Yeah. And the lawsuit um, that Kyle Beach was involved in, and I believe um, there's actual, there's another uh, person on that lawsuit who is not identified. I believe it might be the minor that was assaulted by Brad, uh, Brad Aldrich later on, who has not been identified, but that lawsuit was filed in May of this year. Um, and the NHLPA has not really commented on it at all, regardless of whether or not Kyle Beach was a member of this union, because he wasn't. Um, he was a black ace, uh, which in NHL lingo is he was part of the minor league team who was called up to basically be a practice player with the playoff team of the Chicago Blackhawks. Like while they're doing the playoffs, they run practices and they bring up minor league players to be part of those practices. So while he was not a member of the NHLPA, he was a member of the Professional Hockey Players Association, which is the union for minor leaguers, uh, AHL and ECHL players. They have not said anything, to my knowledge. They might have since. I should check that. But they didn't come out with like this vocal, public, full-throated, like, we need to figure out what happened. We need to figure out how we're going to protect people going forward from situations like this. The NHLPA has said nothing except for Don Fair, their executive, to say, like, we're part of the problem and I'm going to make changes. But there's been no demand for accountability in, in this situation. I think you really see how these players' unions are not necessarily invested in the protection of the players, that there may be some other interests at play because they seem to be following the same line as the executives in the employers that they're supposed to be you know, kind of bargaining against, so to speak. Um, it definitely seems like a conflict of interest at play. I think it's worth noting that Beach was a minor leaguer at the time that, you know, this is again, someone with who's vulnerable in a vulnerable position. You know, minor league hockey players are, you know, they're not making the big money that NHL players can sometimes make. You know, Beach was just in his third year of his career, I believe, at this time. And, you know, it was that vulnerability that, he felt pressured to stay silent about the incident. Um, you know, there's a threat detailed in the lawsuit, you know, a direct threat against both his, not just his safety, but his career. You know, if he were to, you know, say it was anything other than consensual, what happened to him? It's once again, a story of people in, you know, somewhat precarious positions being abused by people with power over them. Even if in this case, the powerful person is just a video coach, as we said. Yeah, the investigation really details how Aldrich created this like impression among the Black Aces that he had like a direct line to the head coaching staff in the front office and that he could tell them what types of things that people are looking for on tape um, and that he was really going to help uh, Kyle Beach's career is kind of like how, it, how the, he sets this up is like he's creating this impression that he's going to help his career and then that's when the assault happens so it's a very direct result of like making kyle beach feel like he has something to gain or has has some need to protect himself uh otherwise his career will be ruined and you know it's that sort of selling of aldrich as you know this sort of wizard who knows how to make players look good and knows how to make them um you know stand out for the coaches that you know we see in so many of these stories that someone's success at what they do is used, you know, if not to explicitly justify their wrongdoing, it is used to 
excuse or to overlook their wrongdoing in so many cases. Um, you know, maybe Aldrich was a really good video coach and maybe that played some role in Blackhawks in action. But of course, it's no excuse. It's just too often used as one. That and it is often used, especially to shut the victim up. I'm now I'll, I'll be open. I've never played for a sports team at any level. I didn't play high school sports or any of that, but I am familiar with secondhand stories from the building where I teach from other buildings about stories like this. And in almost all of these cases, the predator, the Brad Aldrich in all of these stories does something very similar because they know that they are taking advantage of somebody young who may well want an athletic career uh, uh, because it's one of the few ways we've given people to make a lot of money very, very fast and promises them all sorts of advantages in exchange for their acquiescence. And then the moment that the assault happens, turns that on its head and uses it as a method of silencing. Knowing that if the victim brings it up to anybody, the leadership is not going to listen. And it has never gotten, I've been at this for a decade. I heard my first stories about this, my first year teaching. It has never gotten easier to hear them. And the fact that this rot was allowed to sit there at the heart of uh, the Chicago organization for 11 years is not shocking. And it is not really disappointing because the bar is so low, but it is regardless infuriating because these are actual people being put through the ringer, as Kyle Beach says, being made to feel like they didn't exist by people who every other day will treat will say that they are teammates and brothers and people that they will credit with victories and people that they will refuse to blame after defeats and people that they will talk about in glowing terms. And the fact that no one along the line, no other coaches, no front office, no other players, not their union, not the major league union stood up for them is a failure of humanity on every single level, which only makes the NWASLPA story all the more, I guess, encouraging, if anything, that they were willing to stick up for their fellow players the way that they did. Yeah, it's um, the reactions from around the NHL have just been so galling in their uh, their cravenness. Like, you know, Patrick Kane and Jonathan Taves saying like, oh, those are good guys. Like, they did a lot for me personally. Patrick Kane, who uh, was also accused of asexual assault in 2015 and because of the media circus around it, um, was not really, I don't think, fully... Like, there's no way for us to really know what happened because of how out of control the story got so quickly. Um, but the NHL and the Blackhawks were very quick to just dis- issue a blanket discrediting of the uh, victim in that case, um, basically saying, you know, what she says isn't credible and that's it. Like, we're, we're moving on from that. And 
in light of what happened uh, in 2010, that makes me trust that even less. I thought it was dubious at the time, but it's like, clearly, they'll go out on a limb to, to protect themselves and to make sure that they don't look bad. And for Patrick Kane to say, well, Stan Bowman did a lot for me personally, is like, well, you know, that that's interesting for you to say, Patrick. That's all I've got to say about that. But yeah, it's just, they've basically been saying like, this is a terrible thing that happened, but I don't think it's anybody's fault. Um, it's been like an utter just lack of understanding of how accountability works and how we need accountability for things like this. It's basically like, well, it didn't happen to me, so it sucks for him. It, it's it's the worst case of athlete brain on record. I mean, it, the the level of the level of self involved because I remember that Patrick Kane case, and I remember that was one of the few times in my life I've considered getting into NHL hockey. That happened, and I pretty much said, "All right, maybe let's not do this." Oh yeah, right because now. that was in that was actually a Western New York thing because he was being investigated in Buffalo. That's so right. That's it. Makes sense that that was on your radar. So um, I yeah I remember that and I remember how quickly it got. I didn't even know what team he played for. So this is me finding this out six years after the fact. But I remember how quickly that case got quashed. I remember talking to my students who didn't believe a word of it. Yeah, for reasons I'm not going to get into here. And like you said, at the time I thought, well, this this is kind of weird. And now I'm just thinking, well. It, it's too bad we don't it's too bad it got so out of control because now we'll never know and the chances are that that was exponentially more credible than it may have appeared at the time yeah it um it really shows a pattern specifically in the Blackhawks organization of doing things like this um not just in hockey in general because I could talk about hockey culture and the problems with hockey for days and I won't subject you all to that but you know, specific to this organization and specific to the way that um, the unions and, you know, kind of player advocacy and even like not even people directly affiliated with the league, but the way advocacy organizations have reacted to this has just been so like out of step with what we say we want for the sport, right? It's like we want to have this like supportive and inclusive environment. And meanwhile, we're just like, victim blaming or saying like, well, this was really terrible and we're going to do better, but not really specifying like how you need to make your efforts to do better structural and holistic and kind of like built from the ground up and not just like, you know, these, like these blanket things that Gary Bettman's saying like, oh, we're going to have a hotline. Um, if anyone ever hears about sexual abuse, they have to call me or Bill Daly um, Bill Daly, I think, I don't know his exact title, but he's a, a very high-ranking NHL executive whose job is to basically say legalese words um, anytime anyone asks him anything. Something that we've always tried to do on these uh, punching out episodes about sports, which we dubbed the strike zone, is to say that you know sports is a lens through which we can see labor issues that are in every other workplace in the country. You know, Obviously, the level of pay and the, the fame and not every industry is as lucrative as you know professional sports can be, but there are some issues that are the same no matter where you go. And here we have cases of abuses of power that you know feel very similar to cases we've heard in other areas of society in recent years. You know, Zoe, you talked about Patrick Kane's comments about how Aldrich was you know always great to me, and it 
I couldn't help but think of, you know, the abusers we've seen in society. Andrew Cuomo, of course, comes to mind, you know, abusing his position as governor of New York State and up until recently over female employees. And whenever these people are accused of wrongdoing, they seem to have a list of women they can call to say, well, he was always good to me. You know, he's never done wrong to me. So clearly he couldn't have done wrong to other women, which, as we all know by now, is not the case. That's not how that works. And I've never understood why that's a thing that anyone accepts as a thing that you can say. If you know at least one other human being, you know that this is not true. It, it, you know that that is... Pardon. You know that that's horse manure the moment you open your mouth. And yet, people say this and appear to expect it to be taken seriously. By the way, just two quick things. Number one, Bill Daly is the deputy commissioner and chief legal officer for the National Hockey League. And Gary Bettman on this show, because we haven't had Amanda on in a while, it falls to me to remind everybody, that's hell demon Gary Bettman. He's a very evil man. Um, his his press conference um, in light of the Chicago Blackhawks uh, scandal and the Jenner and Block report coming out, was basically like widely panned even by longtime media. And I mean, nobody likes Gary Bettman. Like nobody likes him. It is, uh, except maybe like a few people in like suburban Arizona who made a lot of money off of some land deals to build that arena. Like nobody likes him. And like, even it's just the, the ire that he's risen, even in like the rank and file NHL reporters has just been so it's been jarring to see because it's like everyone is so outraged, but nobody is doing anything. They're calling for him to step down, but it's like, who are they going to even replace him with? And what, what are we going to do to like actually start, you know, this reconciliation process? Like no one is even talking about that. They're basically just saying like time for Batman to step down time to like fire everyone. And it's like, what's going to happen here? I, I honestly don't know. I think the more time passes, the more likely it is that things just stay the same. I don't think anyone intends to step down over this, with the exception of Bowman and Quenville, who are the sacrificial lambs now, I guess, of this whole situation. It's like, well, we, we they resigned. Gary Bettman did also leave the door open for them to rejoin the NHL in an official capacity in the future. Like, he's already set up the redemption arc for them to return. So... I think they intend to keep everything status quo, and I don't think the players' union is going to do anything about that. Zoe, you said it in the first segment that in stories like these, it's never just one person who did something wrong. It's always a you know a bigger cultural issue at play that um, you know these institutions you know they would very much like for the problem to be all one person's fault. They would like to have you know this is solely on. Brad Eldritch and but but it's not the rot goes higher up than that and you you have to be able to look past their um, desire to throw someone under the bus and just move along with the issue because if you do that then you won't root out the people who will allow these things to happen in the future yeah it's um hockey culture in general is having a moment I think just from like and the same is happening, I think, in the in the NWSL sphere as well, where all of these like major cultural issues and major institutional issues are just being exposed one after the other after the other. Um, you know, a story just came out today about uh, 
a sexual uh, abuse sort of cover up. I guess sexual abuse really isn't the right word. It was more like a hazing, homophobic, racist abuse issue um, in Danvers High School in Massachusetts, where the head coach of the hockey team was also like a high ranking police officer in the town. So, of course, it was reported and nothing was done because he was a cop. Um, Like, I think, I mean, stories like this have come out before. There are many sexual abuse stories um, about junior hockey, particularly Swift Current, Maple Leaf Gardens. Those are the two that I can think of off the top of my head. Like, I, I, I think that periodically there are these little avalanches and like incrementally something might get done. But nothing is really done to get at the root of what's causing this, which is, I think, primarily that many of the leaders in the sport for a long time have been hateful, bigoted people and people who do not believe sexual assault victims. And until they're out, I don't think that's going to change. I don't think that, I mean, obviously, USA Hockey, like they can't even find someone to hire for the GM job for Team USA, who isn't involved in a sexual abuse cover-up, as uh, as Noah mentioned to me earlier, I think uh, offline, he brought up how uh, Bill Guerin was hired to replace Stan Bowman uh, in the USA Hockey general manager role, and he is also involved in a completely separate sexual assault cover-up. So it's like, as you get down the list of people that are qualified for this job, you keep finding people who are involved in this. And that seems to be the real problem here, not just a handful of people. And ultimately it's the people at the bottom of the totem pole who are most vulnerable. It's people who are, you know, coming up through the ranks, you know, whether that's in youth hockey, minor league hockey, women's soccer, uh, youth soccer, you know, the impacts are going to be felt on those levels because, you know, that's who predators like to prey on people smaller than them. I wish I had a better note on which to end this episode. I, I don't know if either the two of you have something poignant to say in this moment. I literally cannot say anything at this point that will not get us fined. <laughs> um, I would like to say that I think we can all continue to look to the NWSL Players Union as a great example of what a players union can be and what any union can be um, at, or just any like advocacy organization by clearly and strongly defining goals and needs for the people who are affected by absolutely anything. I think that it's I think that the time may have finally come where people are going to take a long, hard look at, you know, professional sports in the way that they're structured, maybe, and begin to see where the cracks are. I, I, I don't think that th- stories like this can keep coming out without people noticing and continuing to be angry. And maybe if the threat of, uh, you know, financial losses is great enough, then maybe people will finally start doing something. You know, we got to we got to advocate with our wallets and not give money to leagues that cover up things like this. And also, you know, support players that, you know, that have spoken out about things like this and done so well and don't give them an inch, you know, you're here. That's all very well put Um, for this week on punching out. I'm Ryan. I was Noah. I am Zoe. And this was punching out. 
You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hi, this is Ryan, Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. From Punching Out. We've been airing on Wayo for four years now and want you to know that everything the station does is only possible through a lot of volunteer labor and the support of listeners like you. So from now until November 12th, you can go to donate.wayofm, that's W-A-Y-O-F-M.org, and help keep us and the 80 other shows that air on Wayo each week going for years to come. Donors and Wayo members get cool perks like t-shirts, discounts, at local businesses, and more. So go to donate.wayofm.org to support your favorite community radio station. Thanks.